You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 62 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures given in Berlin, translated by Simon Blacksland de Lange. This is Lecture 2, given in Berlin on the 7th of November, 1912, entitled, On What Foundation is Spiritual Science Based? In what I said a week ago, I allowed myself to cite a number of objections to or refutations of spiritual research or anthroposophy. It would be a misunderstanding if anyone were to assume that today's lecture will be devoted to refuting these objections, for it should be said at the outset that I do not intend to engage in a dialectical game of arguments and counter-arguments. The spiritual research of which I shall be speaking here, and of which I have always spoken, should be regarded as being in full harmony with science and modern culture. Hence the retorts that I mentioned a week ago were also not put forward in order that one might resolve them without further ado, but rather in the sense that they appear with a certain justification in the soul that truly takes into account the advances of our present-day intellectual culture alongside the achievements of our spiritual science. They were put forward not as unjustified responses, but as objections, which within their limits are fully justified. And the feeling should thereby be awakened of the seriousness with which spiritual science should work, and of the awareness that it can take full responsibility for itself from its own sources, despite the fact that this spiritual research understands all too well quite especially in connection with these objections, that it is thrown back solely on its own resources as regards what is mainly a threefold hostility with which it is faced. One aspect of this hostility arises from contemporary science, or at any rate from that form of it that often believes that the foundations on which it is based cannot be contradicted. The second aspect arises from many forms of religious conviction, and the third derives from ordinary waking consciousness, which in many respects instinctively rejects what spiritual science, spiritual research has to say. It could easily seem as though the following question is clearly justified. How does spiritual science prove its assertions in the face of the objections that have been made? How does it prove what it has to say? In the course of these winter lectures, we will be hearing much about actual results of research concerning a supersensible world. In these two initial lectures, I need to be allowed to speak in a way that many people may perhaps find abstract, although it is not intended to be, and also difficult to understand or uninteresting. For even if some people cannot follow everything that I am saying in the first two lectures, they may nevertheless come to feel that the intention is to acquire a really good foundation 
for this spiritual research. Thus a number of questions will be addressed today which those who are more interested in receiving accounts of aspects of the supersensible world may find uninteresting. One question that may be raised is whether what are ordinarily regarded as proofs can be applied in a generally accepted sense to the establishing of a world conception. Can one consider proofs to be something that, should they indeed exist, contain the compulsion that every single person should be convinced by them? Everyone who seriously acknowledges a particular conception of the world usually believes that he could prove it, and he will present his proofs for this world conception with full confidence if he wants to be taken seriously. In contrast to this widespread belief, I should like to cite the view of an energetic and active German philosopher, namely Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who says, The nature of one's philosophy depends on the kind of person one is. If one wants to arrive at the essence of what Fichte is saying here and ask what he really means, one would say, it is not simply a question of proofs, but of what proofs one considers to be authoritative, what proofs have weight in order that a person may, in accordance with his soul development, gain insight into something or other. Thus we are guided by a philosopher such as Fichte toward our inner nature when it is a question of evaluating proofs. The requirement is, therefore, that a person has, through his inner development, acquired the capacity to be able to perceive the compelling quality of proofs. Expressed in plain terms, one could say, what ultimately is the use of any amount of proofs to someone who cannot believe in them? And there is much that we can discern about the nature of these so-called proofs from the methods deployed by many world conceptions that would appear to be based wholly on the firm foundation of scientific facts. When I say something in the way that I want to express it now, I always have to pre prefix it by saying, I believe that there is no one who can have more respect and recognition of the advances in natural science in our time than the genuine spirit researcher. And today I particularly want to say in advance that all the objections that were made a week ago were meant in such a way that they were justified to the extent that any direct refutation on the part of the spirit researcher of what was said last week would be unjustified. For the spirit researcher does not deny what scientific research maintains and rightly does so, he fully acknowledges it. This fact must also be taken into consideration. Spiritual research is constantly opposed by natural science. On the other hand, spiritual research does not itself in any way oppose natural science, if one is in a position to appreciate the true state of affairs. But there are many scientific facts that are made use of today by streams associated with certain worldviews and seemingly placed in a certain light, such that one can be in full agreement with the facts but not with the way that these world conceptions sometimes want to prove something on the basis of these facts. 
The facts that arise from natural science are, for the most part, only confirmed by spiritual research. And it may be said that the time will come when that which finds its justification through Darwinism and through the modern theory of evolution will find its true valuation through spiritual research. It can also be especially clear through spiritual research that the human soul, if it is to be active in the outer physical world, must for certain mental operations make use of particular parts or portions of the brain, just as for other tasks one uses one's hands. Just as the hand is needed for certain things that people do, so are certain parts of the brain allotted as instruments for soul experience. Spiritual science is well able to have an overview of the right meaning and significance of this assigning of resources. And it has absolutely no quarrel with what natural science advocates in this respect. On the other hand, the so-called proofs that are put forward are, for anyone who understands such things, often not very convincing. As, for example, when, with respect to the true facts that certain parts of the brain belong to the life of soul, it is said that the soul activity concerned is eliminated through the illness of these portions of the brain, and one is therefore unable to perceive that the soul manages to carry out certain functions, as, for example, speech in such a way that the speech center is eliminated. For someone who understands matters of cogency, such proofs have met with the problem of the famous, albeit non-existent, Professor Schlaucherl, who, as perhaps some of you will know, wanted to carry out a proof of how a frog senses things. To this end, he placed a frog on the experimental table and knocked on the table, and behold, the frog jumped away, meaning that it had heard the knock. Now he ripped off its legs and knocked again on the table. This time the frog did not jump anywhere because its legs had been broken off. But because it could no longer jump away, Professor Schlaucherl concludes that the frog hears with its legs, for if it has no legs there is no evidence that it can hear. If one cites such a scenario, one must of course crave indulgence. But it is logically and methodically in complete harmony with what is frequently adduced today for purposes of proof with regard to facts, that spiritual science would not by any means consider to be dubious and which are even true. However, the proofs that are put forward are never really able to convince anyone who is able to judge what actually holds water. This is how it is with much that was presented in the previous lecture as to how there is this weighty objection that can be made in the scientific sense by serious and respected natural scientists of the present when it is said, in the past, people conceived of a life force and they tried to explain all processes in the living body by means of this life force. But the 19th century has shown that there is no need for this idea of a life force and that purely on the basis of the ordinary forces residing in certain substances, one can show in the laboratory how certain composite substances that were previously thought to be able to come into existence in the living organism only through the life force can be produced in the laboratory without it, 
so that the ideal of science must therefore consist in presupposing that it will eventually be possible to manufacture also more complicated substances of the living world in this way. Now along come the spirit researchers and maintain that there is in the living organism a special life body or etheric body which is necessary for living things to exist. But this is none other than a revival of the old life force. This could therefore only derive from dilettantes who are in their comfortable way looking for an explanation in an area where because of their ignorance they are not taking account of the advances of true science. I should first like to explain through a kind of historical testimony how this whole inference has its effect on a soul who, while inclined in this direction by the, may it be said, justified advances of science, does not so readily accept its conclusions. I intend to demonstrate this initially by means of an historical example. People think that the notion of an etheric body or life body has been disposed of when it is said it must be an ideal of science to compose living substance from its separate constituent parts in the laboratory. Hence one can no longer believe that life came into being through something supersensible. But one must regard it as an influence in purely material substance when one works in the laboratory and puts composite substances together from simpler ones. There was a time when people truly believed more than a serious modern scientist would dare to today that one could in a laboratory make not only a single living substance but also living beings of the lowliest kind, even a little human being, the familiar homunculus. When people firmly believed that one could give rise to the homunculus in the laboratory, they did not by any means adopt this belief out of the idea that the supersensible aspect of living phenomena was created out of the world. The fact was that they believed precisely in the supersensible aspect of living phenomena. This is an historical objection against the assertion that there is an incompatibility for human thinking between believing in the supersensible origin of life and at the same time representing the view shared with modern naturalists that living things can be produced in the laboratory. The two things are perfectly compatible. And in order to see that this is so, one does perhaps need to introduce an essentially trivial train of thought, which is therefore no less significant for someone who not only does not allow himself to be hypnotized or be open to suggestion by a natural scientific worldview, but who is able to enter into the full dimensions of man's life of soul. Let us suppose that we have before us certain substances. We amalgamate them. We see, hypothetically, that something living arises out of them. Are we justified in drawing the conclusion that from what we saw of the individual substances before us, the life of the resultant phenomenon has come into being? No, we are not. And we are no longer so justified from the moment that we admit that the flies that have gathered after a certain time did not develop from the residues of food lying in the room. 
When we see a room full of flies, we can say that these flies are there because the room was a mess and bits of food were lying about. These bits of food were the condition, but they did not make the flies. However, flies are always present when the conditions are right, and when this is so, life will appear. But no one should maintain that it has arisen from them, but merely that they have been the cause that life has appeared. A supersensible process should also be assumed when such a sequence of events happens in the laboratory. Hence, from the side of spiritual research, it would be completely fallacious if it were to make a point of wanting, in a more or less ironical or witty way, to rise above what natural science strives towards as its ideal. It fully goes along with this ideal and is in full agreement with it. But this does not render any less relevant what spiritual science contributes to a real complete understanding of things. Let us take as another example the objection made against spiritual science insofar as it explains the phenomena of sleeping and waking by saying that there is in man a supersensible aspect which rises from the physical body and etheric body when a person goes to sleep, enters into a particular spiritual world and dives down into them again when he wakes up. We have mentioned the weighty objection, which is thoroughly compelling, that natural science tries to explain the phenomenon of sleep by putting forward a kind of self-regulation of the organism, by showing that the stimuli that are exerted by the impressions of the daily life to a certain extent destroy, use up organic substance, so that a point is reached where this organic substance, the life substance, must be restored. While it is being restored, a dullness extends over the consciousness, and once this restoration is complete, the outward stimuli can function again. Thus, we would have to do with a self-regulation of the organism and could say, what is the need for a special kind of spiritual research that engages in a description of what is alleged to go forth from a person during sleep? if the phenomenon of sleep can be explained from the human body itself. The weight that can be attached to this scientific interpretation, which is absolutely true within certain limits, can be seen through the following examination. Even though what I am putting forward is only presented in the form of an outline, it harmonizes, albeit not in all its details, with the whole spirit of modern scientific research. So, what happens when the organism is lying before us in sleep, also in accordance with a scientific perspective? According to such a view, we must say, the organic substances that have been used up through the impressions of the senses and through other outward impressions are, as it were, repaired. There, therefore, occurs an inner process a process that is wholly conditioned by the nature and being of the human body, the human organism. And we can, of course, explain what thus occurs inwardly only from what lies within the laws of the human body, within the laws of the organism. However, these laws of the organism can never, either in the present or in the future, give us anything different. Anyone who has real insight into these matters has to acknowledge this, as, for example, what the lungs give us for the breathing process. 
Anyone who investigates the human breathing process will be able fully to understand it from the laws of the functioning of the lungs. But what will not be understood from this is the nature and influence of oxygen. This needs to be investigated outside the lungs, for oxygen enters into the lungs from outside. And anyone who thinks he can come to know the nature of oxygen by studying the lungs would be gravely mistaken. The process enacted by the lungs, everything that takes place within the organism can be studied from the inner aspect of the lungs themselves. In order to understand breathing as a whole, it is necessary that we go beyond the activity of the lungs and understand the nature of oxygen itself. And we shall gain nothing by way of knowledge of the nature of oxygen from the process of lung activity. We shall gain equally little by investigating what happens in the organism during sleep if we want to know about everything that occurs in waking consciousness from morning until evening with all the impulses, passions, emotions, ideals and so on that buffet us to and fro. Just as little as the activity of the lungs is one and the same thing as the nature of oxygen and as sure we can be that oxygen has to enter the lungs from outside, we also know with certainty that everything that is encompassed within the phenomena of consciousness must unite with, must enter into from without what we can study and observe inwardly during sleep as inner bodily processes. Such a train of thought is not so easy to grasp immediately. However, if you follow it through, you find it is no mere analogy. It is more than that. It is a kind of educational means enabling one to gain a right overview of the elements of the life situation that has been characterized. And anyone who really clarifies in his mind the relationship of the oxygen that is outside and enters the lungs to what happens in the lungs learns to recognize through such a concept, through such an idea, how he needs to think about what goes on during sleep outside the physical body and what must be added to the processes that occur in the physical body during sleep if consciousness is to be experienced, just as oxygen must be added to the inner organic processes of the lungs if there is to be any real vitality in the breathing process. What one may refer to as the, quote, founding principles of spiritual science, close quote, is by no means as simple as people often think. Because there is nothing simple about such things, it may often seem as though they have been formulated as a result of some lightweight refutations from the world. It is actually a case of recognizing arguments and counter-arguments in connection with Fichte's adage, as to what kind of person one is, that is, what kind of soul constitution one has, in order to see things in their true light. How often one hears people say, Oh, here come these spirit researchers, or anthroposophists, saying that man, whom one can clearly perceive to be a single entity, and on whose behalf we have struggled to perceive as such, is divided into various members or parts, into a physical body, an etheric body or life body, an astral body, and an ego. 
Yes, they divide everything up in this sort of way. But it is not a matter of simply making divisions, but of engaging in methods of research in accordance with the justified demands of a thinking that really penetrates into the nature of things. If someone has some water, he will not disagree with the chemist when he says, as long as you let this water, in quotes, remain as it is, you will never arrive at its chemical components. For this you must separate it into hydrogen and oxygen. So long as one remains on such solid ground, one will probably not hear the objection, you are committing a sin against monism, for water is a monad. You should not divide it into hydrogen and oxygen, otherwise you become a wholly superstitious dualist. One is not so likely to hear such an objection in an area of such tangibility, because here it is perfectly obvious that such a division needs to be made. What, then, is the main characteristic of a justification of making such a division if one is not merely considering water, but if one is surveying the whole realm of existence that comes into question here? The essential point here is that oxygen can not only be in water, but, as the chemist would agree, also in other substances with which it is able to unite, and that hydrogen can likewise unite with other substances, so that one can therefore divide water and the separate parts can take up quite different connections and have in these connections their particular destinies. If spiritual science was only concerned with distinguishing the components that make up a human being, thus the etheric body and the physical body, not to mention the other parts, one could say, you are making a division. But if you pursue spiritual research, and it is not possible to consider everything today, the situation is exactly similar to, for example, chemistry. We do not divide man into a physical body and an etheric body because it suits us to separate out the respective phenomena in this way. But, because we do indeed need to show, just as hydrogen and oxygen, when they are separated from their water nature, have their different destiny in a variety of substances, so does the physical body in death undergo its particular destiny, as the etheric body, and also the astral body form different connections. Just as the chemist pursues the path of water, if he is not content to leave it in the form of a monad, but conceives it as a duality of hydrogen and oxygen, so does the spirit researcher follow the path of the physical body, the etheric or life body, the astral body, and the ego into the most varied areas of life. This gives him the justification to speak of a real division, an objection that he would thereby be infringing against monism would be of a similar significance to the idea that dividing water into hydrogen and oxygen is infringing against it. It is, therefore, a matter of understanding through real insights into the situation, the value, the justification of objections, and also the limits of the objections. It can be seen from any true, serious spiritual science, if one really enters into it, that it does not skim lightly over the objections, but that it tries to find precisely through them the concepts for its results, that it really considers the arguments and counter-arguments. 
If we again refer today to Fichte's assertion that the philosophy that one has is shaped by the kind of person one is, we could also say what was said a week ago. Everything comes back to an inner subjective quality. The strength of one's convictions is not sought in what is presented outwardly, but in the way one has been able to relate to the phenomena of the world. We then come to a consideration of what was referred to in the first lecture, to the sources of spiritual scientific knowledge. It was said that these sources arise through a development of the human soul. We shall speak later about how this development unfolds, what paths the soul has to follow in order that it actually ascends to knowledge and perceptions of the supersensible world. Today, I shall simply say that the soul has to undergo inner processes such as meditation and concentration on the inner life. What is brought about by such processes? If someone really wants to become a spirit researcher and wants, so to speak, to make his soul an apparatus for spiritual research, he must endeavor to create for himself a similar state to what is otherwise experienced in sleep. That is, he must, through intense concentration of the will, be in a position to induce a state that otherwise arises only through tiredness in the form of sleep. He must be able to exclude all outer sense impressions, to suppress all brain-bound thinking. And nevertheless, he must avoid that condition that otherwise manifests itself in sleep, the complete emptiness of consciousness. He avoids this by giving himself up to quite definite imaginations, we shall characterize these later on which are suitable for concentrating, for drawing together his soul forces, so that they become stronger than they would be otherwise. Whereas they are normally, as it were, thin, in quotes, and hence, when they leave the physical body during sleep, are unable to know anything of themselves or of the world because their inner perceptive power is too weak, They are strengthened and condensed through such meditations and concentrations. The person does not extricate himself from ordinary thinking in such a way that he has no knowledge of himself, as is the case with ordinary sleep, but rather that he is able to remain conscious and experience through the particular nature of this state, now I am hearing nothing through my ears. I am no longer seeing with my eyes or thinking with my brain-bound thinking, but I am now experiencing myself in the purely spiritual domain and experience a reality there. A normal and justified objection to such a description of spiritual research that is expressed is as follows. One can, through such a soul development, come, for example, to inner imaginative worlds, which one regards as an expression of a supersensible world. Through the way in which these imaginative forms arise, one can also have the opinion that they point to something real, but one surely knows, so it may be said, that someone who has hallucinations, illusory ideas, and visions 
also believes very strongly in these hallucinations and whatever else, and it is therefore completely impossible truly to make a distinction between hallucinations, illusory ideas, and so forth, and what appears to a spirit researcher. Why should one not also regard what the spirit researcher arrives at in this way as a mere hallucination? Quite apart from the fact that one can say that what is experienced inwardly in this way is purely subjective and cannot be verified at any time by someone else, as is, for example, the case with a physical experiment. However, it should be indicated that it does not lie in the nature of all truths that they can be found or even only confirmed through outer events. One can say that for anyone who wishes to think, the ideas of mathematics could be highly convincing, and they are arrived at inwardly. In order to indicate this, we need no more complicated idea than that three times three is nine. For such an insight, all that is needed is an inner imagination of the soul. And it is nothing other than a way of making this visible. If someone, for example, illustrates that three times three is nine, by means of three groups of three Ps. It depends on the soul's inner development. If someone has the knowledge that three times three is nine, and he does not even need to confirm this through an outer process, he knows what he has experienced. He knows it without any outward verification. There is therefore an inner soul exercise for which external verification is no more than a way of making something visible and is confined to this and through which one sees that this inner process is true. The difference between falsehood and truth in the supersensible world is experienced in a quite similar way, though on a higher level. The spirit researcher must want to pass through all the things that can lead him to knowledge, where do hallucinations, visions, and illusions cease? And where does supersensible reality begin? Where the one ends and the other begins can only be seen in a manner similar to how mathematical truths can be discerned. But it can indeed be seen. Anyone who is a real spirit researcher and knows nature, which truly leads to spiritual research, will not in any case entertain the world with his visions. And if you find someone who entertains people about the supersensible world by speaking about his visions, you can presuppose that he is far from being a true spirit researcher. After all, the true spirit researcher knows that all imaginary, visionary life that is acknowledged by people in the outer world merely represents a projection of one's own soul into one's own space. And his science has its foundation not in this space, not in what people actually mean when they speak as ignoramuses about the imaginations of the spirit researcher, but in that which lies behind this rhetoric, once he has followed through the whole process of how the life of the soul is made objective and how the wall that is erected as a reflection of our inner soul processes has been broken through. It is particularly important for the spirit researcher that he has recognized the nature of hallucinations, visions and illusions in their connection 
with the inner life of the soul, and can say to himself for a sufficiently long time, what happens is something objectively definitive, but which can be grasped purely as an inner soul process. And it does not belong so much to the requirements of real spiritual scientific schooling to bring the soul through certain exercises to the point where it has experiences that are free from the body. It is rather more important that the soul acquires a right judgment about these experiences outside the physical body in the purely spiritual domain. From a certain point onward, the soul knows through what it is experiencing that it is no longer experiencing subjective processes, but that it has stripped away its subjectivity and is entering into an objective space which is objective for everyone, just as mathematics is objective, in spite of the fact that the burden of proof is a purely inward matter. The mistake that people who believe in their illusions make consists in that they are not able to maintain their power of resistance to the world of illusions for long enough. That belief enters in too early in what they are experiencing, that they do not for a sufficiently long time say to themselves about their experiences, this appears initially to be only a reflection of myself, and only when I have stripped away everything of a subjective nature from myself, as I have to do in the case of mathematics, will I enter into the sphere of objective reality. Thus the objection that with spiritual scientific experiences one is dealing with something of a subjective nature falls away. One has just as little to do with anything subjective as in the case of mathematical truths. When spiritual science is communicated, there is always no question of providing proofs. If this question arises, one needs above all to understand the nature of proof. If it had never happened that someone had seen a whale, no one would be able to prove that whales exist. From all the knowledge that he has, he would never be able to prove the existence of a whale, for a whale is a fact, and facts cannot be proved, but can only be experienced. A logical point of quite some significance is being made here but one must first be convinced about its importance. From this same standpoint, it is not the concern of spiritual scientific communications to provide proofs of the existence of the supersensible world or, for example, of the immortality of the soul, but something altogether different. Those who have been involved for a sufficiently long time in the genuine pursuit of spiritual research will come to be convinced of this. It is not a question of a logical, spiritistic tendency, but of learning to know and communicating supersensible facts. If the spirit researcher has, through the soul development previously described, come to be able to survey the life of the soul between death and a new birth, what he then does is to communicate the facts that he has to present as regards the life of the soul in the time between death and a new birth, communicate what he experiences in the supersensible world. It is a matter of communicating experiences or facts that he passes through or 
traverses in his soul. One can also say what results with the help of these communications. When it is shown how the soul continues to be a self-contained entity when the parts of the body disintegrate, how the soul then undergoes certain processes, how it experiences something in a purely supersensible world and gathers the forces for a new life in order to enter again into physical existence, when this is stated in all its details, it is indeed being shown how the soul lives when it passes through the portal of death. Then facts are being referred to. This is a matter of referring to facts, of communicating facts rather than an abstract proof. Now, one might say, such learning about these facts only has significance for someone who can perceive the spiritual world, someone who has a developed soul. Oh, such an objection appears to be highly convincing, and it should definitely not be thrust aside. But anyone who knows the real life of the soul will also acquire a completely different relationship to this question, to what many people think. So we need to raise the question, are we inwardly convinced in ordinary life when someone gives us abstract proofs of something? Let us take an example shall we say, the picture of the Sistine Madonna. Someone who has no idea of what lies in such a picture comes before this image. Another person is beside him and begins to try to convince him of what is in the picture, while the one who listens understands absolutely nothing of what he is saying. He can spend a long time, in quotes, proving that there is something special in this picture. The person listening is unable to believe his proofs. For what really matters is not that one produces proofs, but rather that the listener has the possibility of believing in these proofs. Someone else stands in front of the picture, a second person comes up and speaks to him, and the listener now has the possibility of perceiving something that is being expressed through the picture. Then, through what he has recognized, the other awakens within him what enables him to believe that it lies in the picture. This other person may not perhaps have been speaking in such a way as to prove something. He merely describes what is actively present within him, describes only that which speaks within him. And once the listener has grasped in his soul what the other is speaking about, and then himself looks at the picture, he then sees something else in the picture, with the result that he knows it is indeed there in the picture. What matters is not an abstract cogency of proof, but that someone comes toward us who knows what lives in the picture, and that we are really able to be receptive to what is in the picture if we have the will to gain an insight into what is there. This is how it is when someone confronts the world and phenomena relating to humanity, and the spirit researcher approaches him. Were the spirit researcher to try to come with abstract proofs, the person who is not in a position directly to experience what the spirit researcher says in his own soul cannot possibly be convinced by a proof. But the spirit researcher does it just as the one interpreting the picture of which I have been speaking. 
he explains what has arisen in his soul, which he has first made an instrument for the spiritual truths that stand in the background of spiritual and human life. He gives the facts that he has experienced. And if the other person is in a position to be able to receive these concepts and facts into his whole life, he now sees the world in such a way that through what the spirit researcher has to say, this becomes the content of his own soul. Of course, it cannot always happen like that. If the spirit researcher, the one who has spiritual experiences, comes to the listener with quite obscure assertions, which for him may well be truths that he has experienced, if he tells him that he may have experienced much in the spiritual world, about all the beings that are there and what they do, the listener, who may be hearing it for the first time, is not in the least obliged to believe what he hears. He will not and cannot believe it. Why is he unable to believe it? Because the gulf between what he experiences in his soul and what such a spiritual seer has experienced in his soul is too great. It would be equally unjustified if someone believed he could say that in thirty years a new world savior or a new messiah will come and be expected who will impart great truths of a quite particular kind. This person could only make such an assertion to another person who had not been prepared for it if he had no respect for the human soul and for the achievements of human culture. But there is a way of doing this quite differently, by taking up what every unprejudiced person can follow up to a certain point. Thus it must again be stated that the objection that spiritual research is valid only for someone who because of his developed soul is able to enter the spiritual world, is unjustified. This is not correct. One can undertake research into the spiritual world only if one makes one's soul into an instrument for perceiving it. But one is, so to speak, obliged to clothe what one experiences there in such concepts as can, in accordance with the cultural circumstances of the time, be understandable for every human individual who approaches them without prejudice and does not resist them through, for example, a presumed or false erudition. Hence, it is far rather a question of how the facts of clairvoyant consciousness are communicated to an age than that such facts are communicated. One can, for example, experience when someone confesses to have read only one book and then believes himself entitled to make a judgment and to be able to say, these spirit researchers always begin to use the word, in quotes, esoteric, when concepts elude them. But it could also be the case that with the person concerned who says something of this kind, the word esoteric always has the consequence that his concepts become empty of meaning so that the word esoteric has a numbing effect upon his thoughts. Thus, if someone puts up a resistance in this way and does not call upon what is within his soul in order to enable the results of spiritual research to work upon himself, then, as we saw last week, it is completely natural that the most fundamental objections against spiritual research will be put forward. 
But if the soul devotes itself in an unprejudiced way to what spiritual research gives, the healthy human understanding, healthy unprejudiced thinking, is sufficient in order to share in the experience not of what fades from view in the unschooled soul, but of what can be understood by it. For how does every human soul relate to the spirit researcher, who has a judgment about certain specific facts of the supersensible world because he has ventured into it? Each soul relates to the soul of the spirit researcher as a germinal essence of life to life that is fully developed. And in the same way that in a germinal essence, for example in an egg, the complete living being is already contained, so in every soul is there present what only the spirit researcher can ever say to this soul. Just as in the undeveloped germinal essence it can also be shown how the individual comes forth from it, so can the individual soul which receives the results of spiritual research that have been shared with it gain insight in a germinal way, but with a complete power of conviction into the spiritual worlds. Hence there is never any foundation for accusing someone who relies not merely upon his intellectual power of logical ingenuity, but upon the full power of his soul, that he must be a gullible person if he lets himself be drawn into what the spirit researcher has to say. The intellect alone will not be able to accept it. Thus, it is actually possible to test spiritual science as opposed to accepting it on authority. This has always been so and it will always continue to be possible. It should be pointed out that I didn't call today's lecture quote, on what foundation can spiritual science be proved, close quote, but quote, on what foundation is spiritual science based, close quote. That is, where does it come from and how can the human soul acquire a relationship to it? This relation will, for many people, be really difficult to find for the reason that many objections against this spiritual science seem to carry weight. How should it not have weight? And here I again come to a point where I have to speak abstractly and more uninterestingly when someone says, the spirit researcher maintains that in his supersensible consciousness he can follow the soul to the time beyond birth or conception, how it lives between death and the next birth, and how it then makes its way into the present life. Now, one can indeed show, it might now be objected, how certain qualities that the soul develops during life are fashioned in childhood or before birth in the body of the mother. Perhaps for many people there is nothing among the objections against spiritual research that has such weight as just this objection. Those who have often heard such lectures will know how I also make such objections myself. As, for example, in the Bach family, there have been so many musicians of varying degrees of talent, so that one might, with a certain justification, make the point that a person receives that which makes him a musician purely through the physical line of inheritance. Thus one can make the point that it is through heredity or through acquisition during life that what a person later manifests as his particular qualities and as his individuality comes to belong to him. Oh, 
Such an objection, if one lives with it and abandons oneself to its suggestive power, is very significant. And every spirit researcher will understand that there are people who are unable to free themselves from it and who are very strongly influenced by the force of what is put forward in this regard. But there is something else that belongs to this matter of being impressed by the cogency of arguments, namely the awareness that there can be causes, correctly identified causes, which, nevertheless, do not cause anything, which are not actually the reason that something arises. I am saying something that is apparently very paradoxical, and for someone who allows the weight of spiritual scientific facts to work upon his soul, it is unnecessary to be drawn into this. But the point at issue here is that in responsiveness to the age in which we are now living, we develop an awareness of what can show us from a philosophical standpoint that there can be causes which nevertheless do not cause anything. Why does a hen have feathers, a beak or this or that property of its body when it comes into being? Someone can surely say it has inherited these from the parental hen, and the causes for the particular form of the beak and so forth are the inherited characteristics that we find in that hen from which the feature in question derives. But one needs to see that something else of significance is involved when the qualities of having feathers, of having a particular beak and so on, which are possessed by the mother hen, also appear in the daughter hen. Something may be a correctly identified cause, but it is necessary that one particular germinal essence, among others, arises if the causes can become, in quotes, causes. What matters is not that one refers back from what follows to particular causes, but that one shows to what extent the causes also have been able to become causes. Here we are standing at a point where spiritual science, out of its own facts, can acquire a relationship with, for example, Darwinism. No one who is not a presumptuous but a serious spirit researcher will quarrel with the facts and serious observations of Darwin and Darwinians. He will even agree when Darwin asks, why does the kitten snuggle up to someone when he comes close to it? The researcher indicates that it has already been snuggling up to its mother on the bed, and one sees from this that the later event is connected with the earlier one. One can refer to the causes as to how a person has this or that quality, which he has perhaps received through the mother before he was born. One can make such statements. But one has not said anything about the extent to which the causes have now become causal elements. Everything that can be said by a world conception that is seemingly firmly based on the ground of natural science, which can be explained through inherited characteristics and so forth, is indeed readily accepted by spiritual research. And anyone of this persuasion who raises objections is usually living under the presupposition that what they say is not acknowledged. They are acknowledged. But the other party does not realize that causes have first to become causal elements, 
so that what is at issue is therefore something at a much deeper level than he realizes. This is generally the case today, that people always only judge what spiritual science endeavors to draw forth from the depths of existence on the superficial level that they are themselves able to survey the world. If this were not always happening, articles like the one that appeared last Sunday in the title Berliner Tageblatt, which by its own admission is based only on a single book, would not have to be written. I should, by the way, like to ask what one would say to someone who had made a conclusive judgment on, for example, chemistry based only on a single book. But this is what our contemporaries do. One might say that spiritual research has weighty reasons to feel substantiated in the present time. For those who have been listening for some while to these lectures, I should probably say that much has been said here from a philosophical background. Whoever recognizes this may perhaps come to the judgment that many philosophers must have supplied proofs for the immortality of the human soul. I must myself admit that I have never felt really comfortable with what has been put forward from the philosophical standpoint as regards proofs for the immortality of the soul or for a supersensible world. For what philosophers mostly have in mind are only the concepts of things. Thus, with respect to the human ego, philosophers themselves merely have the concept of the ego. However, it should be just as clear that nothing real can be deduced from the concept of the ego as it is clear that a painter who has barely painted at all cannot paint a picture. One should be equally clear about the fact that the image of the ego says nothing for the ego itself. Anyone who becomes involved with spiritual science will see that a conviction of the reality of the ego is acquired through something entirely different namely through the whole path of the ego's continuing existence after death. Thus what innocently trusting philosophers adduce along these lines cannot lead one to feel at ease. But from what those who as opponents make such powerful denouncements put forward, anyone who looks at things more deeply acquires a really good proof for the nature of the ego. For there are philosophers who say that they could understand the ego as nothing more than a summation of all possible physiological, etc., activities. One then sees that these researchers say all manner of things, but what they say has no possible relationship to an ego. They are in this respect along the same lines, although in an opposite sense, as those who want to explain the phenomena of life through the life force. For just as the life force is superfluous to requirements, so not only is nothing explained by the explanations that are put forward for the life of the soul, but they are equally superfluous when it comes to a true investigation of the soul. It then becomes apparent that such would-be interpreters actually leave the soul in peace and do not come anywhere near it, so that, therefore, the soul remains intact and proves to be something that outward explanations are unable to approach. 
Only if, in the consciousness of the time, the feeling arises that one cannot judge spiritual science superficially, but only through an intensified study of it, will all purely external judgments about spiritual science cease to be able to carry any weight. As it is with scientific objections, so also with the objections that were put forward in the first lecture in a moral or religious aspect against spiritual research. When, for example, it is said that it is infinitely more worthy if someone does something good out of pure selflessness with the view of being annihilated in death, out of the insight and the will that the good that is done passes over into the general whole, that if he does it in view of a compensating balance in ensuing earthly lives, such a judgment has absolute validity and should not be quarreled with. It is true when it is said that a person does something good purely out of egotism if he believes that through karma he will, as a kind of reward, be the recipient of something beneficial in a new earthly life, or if he refrains from an evil action because it could manifest itself as a kind of punishment in the new life. It is certain that one can view such an assertion as grounded in egotism, and that one can therefore say with full entitlement what spiritual research is alleged to say about man would therefore promote an egotistical quality among human beings. Schopenhauer once rightly said, you know that I do not by any means always agree with him, that, quote, it is easy to preach morality, but difficult to implement it, close quote. What does it mean to implement morality? It means to bring about a state of soul through which a person can accomplish a moral action. Anyone who has experience of people knows that it is not only easy to preach morality, but also largely futile. For people are not very good at knowing all about moral principles and very bad at acting on them. If it were merely a question of listening to moral preaching, there would be far more moral people than is actually the case. Someone might say, for instance, let us take a parental couple who make every effort to encourage their children to become decent and capable people. For, so say the parents, if we make them into decent and capable people, they will be able to be a support for us in old age, and we will be able to derive all sorts of benefits from them. If the parents bring their children up with this in mind, it is a highly selfish point of view to have. But let us suppose that the children do become respectable citizens, so that they are decent and capable people when they have grown up. Then the parents have, to be sure, done something egotistical, but they have not themselves been preaching morality, but have established it. And it could turn out that if they make their children into capable people, and the children then later manifest something quite different than they would have imagined, they may arrive at quite another ethical attitude. This would also be a case of the parents establishing a moral attitude rather than preaching about it. Let us suppose that someone may not have had the opportunity to think in terms of a compensatory balance for wicked deeds in his next life. But by performing actions under the influence of such a perspective of karma, he gradually develops a moral view of the world. 
It will be established out of human nature. To be sure, someone who is still at a lower moral level will act out of an egotistical view of karma. But a person who has arrived at a higher standpoint and therefore has a higher attitude toward karma will be capable of fulfilling selfless moral demands. Thus what matters is that one does not refer abstractly to something by giving expression to an egotistical notion of karma, but that one shows how it leads a person toward a higher development. This could be further explained by showing how spiritual research is directed toward the true reality of human nature. If someone were to raise the other objection that many people might say to themselves, I have future earthly lives before me, so I need to become a decent person only in later lives. Now I still have time. Now I can still be a disreputable person. This would be an objection that can also be countered theoretically. But in order to approach it in the right way, one needs to be aware of the practical implications. One must know that someone who is of the view that he does not yet need to be a decent person, but will become so only in his next life, has, through such an intention, exerted an influence upon his next life. If he does not decide to become a decent person, he will not have the necessary basis for his next life either. He therefore now acquires the capacity in order that he may subsequently become a decent person. He takes steps to gather together the forces for this. Thus, little by little, it might become possible again to speak about the justified moral objections. The religious objection can also be taken into account. People say that spiritual research needs to explain that in every soul there is a spark of the divine and that a human being increasingly develops this divine spark from life to life. A spark of divinity, therefore, comes to dwell within the human breast. I try to show how one may relate to this matter and how one may present it in its true perspective in the first scene of my mystery play titled The Soul's Probation, 1911. It is true that through such an interpretation one may be called a religious principle, the feeling of dependence on the divine outside which man stands, the childlike looking up to this divinity external to himself is lost. But one should also acknowledge that which can be said from the other standpoint, that a person can fully see that the divine world has implanted a spark within him which he must experience and must bring to full development, that he can indeed come to see that he bears within him a divine spark and if he leaves it undeveloped it will wither away. The sense of connection with the divine, together with the necessity of having to develop this spark, is an impulse of an infinitely much greater strength than any other religious impulse. Anyone who involves himself with spiritual science will see that there is never any question of antagonism toward any religious confession. People think that because religious faiths and denominations are so eager to oppose spiritual science, Spiritual science will also oppose them. But a similar situation prevails here as with the previously characterized scientific objections. 
Spiritual science is not hostile to the intentions of any religious faith, for its concern is with the relation of the human soul to the supersensible worlds, while religion has to do with the relation to the individual soul. Anyone who is really able to see this will understand how it is absolutely possible for someone to engage in spiritual research despite being involved in a religious faith of his own choosing. However, as spiritual science becomes established through becoming accepted in the world, it will be able to give man what one may call a deepened conception of the life of the soul, both of the soul life of the individual and of the interaction between individual souls. Anyone who is able to convince himself only to a small extent that all outward human interaction can only be an outward picture of how souls relate to one another will have an insight into the immeasurability of what results for the soul if it comes to understand how the individual soul relates to other souls, how the individual soul can relate to another soul when it has rightly grasped the nature of the destiny of one soul with respect to another in the life between death and the next birth, what the destiny of an individual soul is, what it means to be separated from another soul, what it means to acquire a new relationship to the departed soul if the soul that has remained here is able to know something of the supersensible world. New light will be shed on all human knowledge and on all other areas of human life when that which can be derived for each individual soul from the depths of the supersensible world can become incarnate in human souls. The recognition, perceiving, and understanding of spiritual truths is not merely a matter of thinking about reality, but of becoming livingly part of it. This has not only been recognized in recent times by spiritual science, but has actually been recognized wherever people have spoken out of a real knowledge of the spiritual world. I say what I have to say regarding the place of spiritual research with respect to those who reject it without really knowing much about it, not on my own behalf, but on behalf of Johann Gottlieb Fichte. If there is much of a serious, perhaps for many, wounding nature in what he says, one should bear in mind that it comes from a man who with full enthusiasm for spiritual research wished to proclaim his anger toward all those who, without really wanting to acquire an insight into spiritual research, reject it and think they have to attack it. Fichte makes the following stern pronouncement, quote, all they can do is to pour their enmity upon that conviction which they find so shameful of a higher aspect in man, and all those phenomena that would seek to confirm that conviction. They must do everything they possibly can to keep these phenomena away from them and to suppress them. They battle for their life, for the finest and most intimate root of their life, for the possibility of continuing to endure. All the fanaticism and all the rage associated with it has, from the beginning of the world to this day, derived from the principle, if the opponents are right, I am a miserable wretch of a human being. If this fanaticism can attain to fire and sword, it attacks the hated enemy with fire and sword, 
If these are not accessible, there remains, this is still also applicable to our present time, the tongue, which, if it does not kill the enemy, is nevertheless capable of powerfully laming its activity and outward influence. One of the most used and favored tricks with this tongue is this, that they confer a generally hated name upon the thing that they specifically hate, in order thereby to decry it and surround it with suspicion. The lasting power of these tricks and appellations is inexhaustible and is constantly augmented, and it would be futile to aim for any kind of completion. I shall call to mind here just one of the most usually hated names, that whereby people say that this teaching is mysticism. Observe, first and foremost, in intention, the form of that accusation, that in the event that an unprejudiced person would reply, well then, let us accept that it is mysticism, and mysticism is an erroneous and dangerous doctrine, so let them say his piece and we shall listen to him. If he is mistaken and dangerous, this will have every opportunity to become obvious. Those people would, in accordance with a categorical decision, that they believe that they have dismissed us with have to answer there's nothing further to listen to. For a long time, probably from well before you were born, mysticism has been decreed as heresy by the unanimous resolutions of all our reviewing councils and subjected to excommunication. Close quote. Steiner again. This is what Johann Gottlieb Fichte says. Fichte expresses himself in a way that can also have validity today about the relationship of spiritual research. Let us say, to those who want to trust only their senses and want to have the world arranged in accordance with what their senses impart to them. Fichte compares such people, although this comparison is perhaps not wholly justified, those who would trust only their senses and do not want to admit that there is a more adequate knowledge of truth, with the deaf and dumb, and those who are born blind, who have also not wanted to acknowledge sounds and colors if those who can see speak to them about such phenomena. Now someone who is blind and deaf cannot be compared with those who do not want to accept what can be given through clairvoyant research, because every soul is capable of finding a relation to supersensible truths. But, Fichte says, quote, that one also cares for the deaf and dumb and those who are blind from birth and has thought out a way of educating them that is worthy of gratitude, that is, from the deaf and dumb and the blind. But if one were to apply this manner of instruction to education in general, also for those who are born healthy, on the grounds that there could also be some among them who were deaf and dumb and born blind, and one were certain that one had seen to everyone's needs. If the person who can hear were to speak just as laboriously, without any respect for his hearing, and to learn to recognize the words on people's lips, like someone who is deaf and dumb, and the person who can see were to read letters through touch, without any respect for his vision, this would earn very little thanks from the healthy. Although, of course, this would immediately be resolved, as soon as the arrangements for the lessons open to everyone were made contingent on properly seeing to the needs of the deaf and dumb and those born blind. Close quote. 
Steiner again. If one were wishing to make an objection to what Fichte is saying, one might perhaps remark that it would not even work with those who are born blind and the deaf and dumb. But if it were a matter of those who trust only in the senses and their reasoning power to come to think of how the world might be fashioned, they would not view this as those who can see perceive it. They would curse and swear and reject all spiritual interpretation of the world other than their own, while regarding what they say about the world as beyond reproach. They would laugh scornfully if it were put to them that only someone who knows about such a matter should speak about it, and that those who know nothing about it should keep silent. The main motivation for all who deny the validity of spiritual research is simply that they know nothing of it. Logically, it would be a basic requirement that only someone who knows about something should be entitled to speak about it. But such motivating factors leading to people rejecting something of which they are ignorant are used in our time to reject a spiritual scientific conception of the world. However, anyone who is able to experience in his soul what was said in the first lecture and does not need to await the objections that he may experience in himself and is capable of identifying in his spiritual life will always find a path toward making a beginning with spiritual research. So that what I have expressed in the first scene of title The Soul's Probation may become a guiding principle. Through this it may be possible for the knowledge that can be imparted from the supersensible worlds, for all that we may hope for in life, for our strength in what we do in life, for our sense of certainty in life, and for everything that we need for a worthwhile human existence to be brought together in the whole fabric of our consciousness. Everything that can be said, what one can say by way of uplifting the soul, of enlivening it and imbuing it with feeling, can be summarized in the words, You are not alone with your thinking, feeling, and will. As you live with your body and the substances that are spread out in the entire universe, so are you living with your thinking, feeling, and will in something that is disseminated in the entire cosmos, in the widths of space. This means that the words that I have brought to expression at the point previously indicated in my mystery play can become a conviction. Quote, in your thinking, cosmic thoughts are living. In your feeling, cosmic forces are weaving. In your willing, cosmic beings are working. Lose yourself in cosmic thoughts. Experience yourself through cosmic forces. Create yourself from beings of will. End not in cosmic distances through dreaming play of thought. Begin in widths of spirit and end in the depths of your own soul. You will find aims of gods knowing yourself in you. The end of Lecture 2